Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. As always, this show does not reflect the views of Howard County Community College, its faculty and staff, and any legal information that is forthcoming on this show is not intended to be specific legal advice for individuals. If you're listening to the show and you have a legal problem, make sure that you consult an attorney and give them all the facts so they can give you an opinion. My guest today is Jerome Francis, Jerry Buting, star of Making a Murderer and numerous other trials in the past. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Thank you. Good to be here. Had the great privilege last night of being down at the Lincoln Theater in Washington, which is a beautiful facility, to see a discussion between you and the star of the show, The Staircase, which had been on HBO and Netflix, David Rudolph. And uh, there's a connection between you and Professor Rudolph, as I recall. There is. Uh, oddly enough, he was one of my clinical law professors at uh, North Carolina Chapel Hill when I was in law school. And, you know, then suddenly it ended up that he's in this very, very popular documentary called The Staircase that was like the Netflix hit of the summer. And um, you know, right before it came out, he actually called me because he knew what I'd gone through with all of the a huge explosion of uh, publicity after Making a Murderer came out. And he asked, you know, what's this going to be like? And I said, your life is about to change, David. Um, it was kind of funny because now I was like the professor and he was a student. It's interesting because as my, my recollection is the show had originally been on HBO some years ago and it really took Making a Murderer and the interest in true crime and that sort of thing to make it take off subsequently on Netflix. Yeah, actually, it was um, it was originally on DVDs that you could only get through mail order uh, Netflix because that's very all modern. they had. Very modern. Back in, I think the original version of the Staircase, first eight episodes came out in like two thousand four, two thousand five, and I had watched it and I had ordered it through through the mail because I knew David and we kept in touch over the years, so I knew his this trial was going to be uh, in this documentary and. It helped inform my decision of whether to participate with the filmmakers doing what turned out to be making a murder. Um, but then what happened was, so they did eight episodes of The Staircase. Then they did a couple more, maybe eight, six, six or eight years ago that was on the Sundance channel that almost nobody saw. And then they added three more as like the final chapter in June and released it, the, the entire series again on Netflix. And that's when it really took off. Very interesting. So you indicated that his experience sort of guided you in whether you were going to participate with the filmmakers. Could you talk a little bit about that process? Sure. The, the interesting thing about The Staircase is uh, it was the first one I'd seen that where they really go behind the scenes in the preparation of what, it, you know, what it's like to prepare a serious case like a homicide from the defense standpoint. But his client was, was a pretty wealthy individual, he a was. successful novelist. And so in that regard, it was very unrealistic of what most, in comparison to what most criminal cases are. And so I thought actually the, the Stephen Avery case was a, a more realistic portrayal, even though Dean and I were paid um, out of his settlement. It was you know, a, a socioeconomic class that was more typical in a criminal justice system. And, and so I thought it might be a different perspective, and I think it, it ended up being very different. One of the things that is a common denominator between the two shows is that it basically involves Caucasians. And right. 
You know, my understanding of a lot of criminal justice statistics are that they are not the predominant defendants in cases such as this. And I wonder if you think that the shows have had any influence in skewing the way people look at these things. Well, you know, people often ask me if, if Stephen Avery had been black, would making a murder have been as successful? And sadly, the answer is no. So, so why do you think that is? I'm intrigued by that response. You know, I, I just think that a lot of what, uh, what you see and what has, what has really um, shocked not just Americans but all over the world in making a murder is something that, that people of color have experienced for, for a long, long time, sure. decades. And so um, it, it's, it's not as new to them, the idea that police lie, that police can be corrupt, that people can be framed, that people can be forced into false confessions. These are all things that communities of color or recent immigrant status have had to cope with in our justice system for, for decades. And it was really kind of the awakening of white America and the world that these kinds of things happen and sadly happen with a degree of frequency that we should not, nobody should be proud of. Do you think there is anything significant that can be done about such things? I mean, aside from electoral politics and that sort of thing. Sure. I mean, there's uh, so I wrote a book called um, Illusion of Justice Inside Making a Murderer and America's Broken System. Sure. And it came out about a year ago, and it was a lot of it was stories and cases that I'd handled in my own career separate from the Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey experience. And I always figured I'd write a book when I retired, but this seemed to be the right time. So in the book, I talk about first, you know, what's broken, give examples of why it's broken, and then also some ideas for reform, things that we can do. Some of them are very complex and difficult and will take a long time. It's not like you snap your fingers, but others are simple things that that we can all do as individuals, that you don't have to be a, a governor or a legislator or even a lobbyist to try and demand changes and reform of our system. And um, one of those is happening today. This is election day. If people go out and vote and they they vote intelligently knowing the candidates and they reject candidates who use the clanging cell doors, lock them up, I'm going to get tough on crime, those old hackneyed approaches and elect reformers in prosecutor's offices, sheriffs, judges, you know, we can make a difference individually in, in you know, and and I think it really it, it requires an interest in doing so, and that's what these documentaries today are doing is waking people up so that they see what really happens in their courtrooms, and then that's hopefully uh, motivating them to seek change. We have had the good fortune on this program to have both of the candidates for Howard County State's Attorney, uh, Kim Oldham and Rich Gibson, on, and I have to say. We have the great good fortune of having two really excellent people. You know, it's one of these things where I, I wish they could both serve because mm-hmm. I have all the respect in the world for both of them. And and I thought that they were both great guests on the show and they had slightly different vantage points on things. But That's we have great. a real luxury. Howard County is a wealthy place and we have a real luxury having people of integrity and we don't have clanging door commercials and that sort of thing. That's, that's so I good. know that is not the norm across the country. No, it's not. It's definitely not. And, you know, too often people just use the idea of getting tough on crime uh, rather than being getting smart on crime. Sure. And they, they use scare tactics. And, I mean, you see it now um, in, in national 
racism. The president, well. I think, sometimes does that. He does, and unfortunately, it's because it's worked yeah. in the past. But it's not working everywhere anymore. Uh, Philadelphia just elected a former criminal defense attorney who ran on a, a platform of reform. Great reducing. article in the New Yorker about that about two weeks ago. Okay, yes, he's, and in fact, I'm going to be uh, sharing the stage with him and David Rudolph tomorrow in Philadelphia. So, Larry Krasner. Larry Krasner is his name. Yes. And what is his basic? How does he differentiate himself from? other Philadelphia prosecutors of the past. Well, he, he came into office with a platform of we've got to do something to reduce our mass incarceration. And the when you say mass incarceration, could you explain to our listeners what you mean by that? It's, it's the over-incarceration of people who... Incarcerating, putting people in prison. Putting people in prison or in jails for long periods of time for oftentimes nonviolent offenses. And, and you see it more and more... Uh, you know, the war on drugs is really when it started. It hasn't worked. It started in the 80s. And we've spent, you know, tens and hundreds of billions of dollars locking people up. I'll give you just one example from sure. my state. So Wisconsin, we have 24,000 inmates right now. And approximately, uh, I think the last I saw, somewhere around 35 or 40% of them are there because they were on probation or supervision of some sort. And were revoked, not because they committed a new offense, but because of a rules violation, sometimes very technical. So, so when you say a rules violation, what sort of thing you're talking about? You know, like where you, uh, you have an encounter with the police walking down the street and you don't report it. Okay. Um, or you, you, you know, spend a few nights over at your girlfriend's house and you haven't gotten permission to do that. Okay. So uh, inconsequential, effectively not crimes, can revoke your probation. That's right. And approximately 40% of our prison population is made up of people like that. Okay. Who could have been dealt with in the community, were in the community, and didn't commit a new crime. They could have been dealt with with some other kind of sanction other than we're going to revoke your probation and send you to prison. We have, uh, I often tell this story, that when I moved to Wisconsin right out of law school in 1981, we had about 7,000 inmates in the state. And our neighboring state, Minnesota, which was demographically very similar, had about 5,000. And over this period of time of 35 years or so, we are now 24,000 and Minnesota is less than 10. So to what do you attribute, if they're similar states, similar populations, <clears throat> similar demographics, why are they different? Was it different leadership or what was the... Leadership, politicians, largely. Okay. We, we have a, and it's not just Wisconsin, you see it all over the place. Uh, we have a tendency to, for legislators to decide that they will use getting tough on crime as a means of getting elected and staying elected. Sure. And so... Whenever anybody with any kind of policy sense tries to sit down with them and say, hey, there's another way we can do this that's smarter, it's, they're rejected as if, oh, I can't do that because then I would be portrayed as being soft on crime. And so it's probably been 50 years since we had a, a comprehensive criminal code. And the criminal code is the criminal laws of Wisconsin. The criminal laws of Wisconsin that initially were cohesive and made sense. And, and since then, it's, it's like the bill du jour of whatever's... The opioid epidemic, for example. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's a serious thing. It um, is. Uh, the, Very serious. You know, the Lynn Bias is, laws is what they're still called all over the country. Really? Yes. Not here in Maryland. Really? We love um, Lenny. So, I mean, the tragic uh, result of, of Lynn Bias's experience, you know, they, they changed the law to make that a reckless homicide. And then there were a lot of prosecutions involving those in the 80s, crack cocaine and whatnot. But then it sort of tailed off for a while until about the last five 
five or ten years with the opioid epidemic now that it is exploding and people are dying right and left from over overdoses, particularly because of the use of fentanyl, which is a hundred times as powerful as heroin. And so, you know, the, the question is, how do you how do you deal with people? Are there ways to, to use drug treatment courts that can address the problem as a medical public health problem rather than a criminal justice problem? We try and use our criminal justice system to solve society's problems, and it doesn't work. And it's very expensive. We are spending now for, for at least five years more in uh, locking people up in the state of Wisconsin in prisons than we do for all of the, the statewide campuses of the University of Wisconsin. Wow. It's, it's insane. And people are starting to realize, why are we spending so much money locking people up instead of educating them, putting money in early childhood education, putting money in treatment, trying to get people off the vicious circle of, of going to prison, getting out, getting back into the same community, reoffending if they or just failing uh, the rules of supervision, getting thrown back in. And, you know, and there's the other thing that a lot of times people don't recognizes a serious problem is that we have approximately nationwide we have approximately 25 percent of americans now have a criminal record it's it's shocking because we keep passing more laws and criminalizing things criminalizing things and taking away deferred prosecutions and things like that and these have long-term consequences harder to get a job harder to advance in certain careers we have expungement Impossible to vote? Uh, not everywhere. But Many places. It though. is, yeah. Florida's trying to correct that today. In Wisconsin, actually, if it's a felony conviction, once you're off supervision, your rights are reinstated automatically. You don't have to apply. But a lot of That varies. has to be from a different pre Scott Walker era. It's very much before that. It's before the voter suppression <laughs> um, movements that we see across the country right now. But, you know, so there are ways that we can. There's a program called Second Chance that is trying to give— And this is in Wisconsin or it's, elsewhere? It's nationwide. Okay. It's actually started, I think, up in Canada, Okay, which is a reason that Amer- a lot of Americans will reject anything that starts in Canada. <laughs> Any idea that started outside of America sometimes— You're in Washington sometimes... capitalist territory, and they're the Stanley Cup champions. So around <laughs> here, we like Canada. Go ahead. Well, that's I'm good sorry. to know. But, but, you know, the, one of the things that I've been able to uh, experience over the last couple of years as I, I've done more speaking all over the world is every place I go, I, I get to immerse myself a little bit into their justice system. And there's a lot of things that other parts of the world are doing right that we are not and that we could adopt. And yet there's this real resistance in America to adopt anyone else's ideas because we are the best. It's a crazy current in the United States Supreme Court about that. There is. They got very upset when, uh, you know, they had the audacity to, to quote anything that came out of the European Union. But the rest of the world is not like that. They adopt parts of, uh, of Americans' uh, procedures uh, that work, and they have re- rejected some that don't. And I think that we could really benefit a lot if we, if we broadened our focus. And that's one of the things I'm hopeful will happen here in the future. The other thing that's a real particular personal motivator for me is forensic science, the state of forensic science. Yeah, let me, let me, let me get to that for okay. just a second. I understand that you and your, I use this word star, maybe protagonist, whatever, making murder. Co-counsel, yes. Co-counsel. But I mean, you gained a lot of 
you know, a lot of people in the world know about you and respect you for your work on that show. And you and Dean have combined to put together, is it a foundation or what exactly is the entity and what is the purpose of the entity? Sure. So Dean and I and Professor Keith Findlay, who was at, Wisconsin, at, right? at the UW Law School in Wisconsin, founder of the Innocence Project in Wisconsin, and also one of the co-founders of the Innocence Network, which brought together Innocence Projects from all over the country into a, a network where they can share resources. But the three of us decided that, that we really wanted to attack the problem of forensic science in the courts. And so we started a nonprofit. It's called the Center for Integrity in Forensic Sciences. Okay. If one hypothetically wanted to find this, so you Google that, or does it have a web address? Or it has a website. I'd like to tell our audience <clears throat> sure. how to find this information. Sure. There's a lot of information on the website. We just went live with this a, a couple of weeks ago. So we're still working out bugs, but we took about a year putting this thing together. It's uh, CIFS, that's C-I-F-S, justice.org. Okay. CIFSjustice.org. And the idea of it, we have a lot of different tracks that we're, we're working on, but it starts with a general premise that forensic science has is broken in this country. And it was first revealed on a national scope in 2009 with a National Academy of Science report that was called Strengthening Forensic Science. And what it did is it looked at all of the, the various fields from DNA to ballistics, fingerprints, blood spatter, hair, hair comparison, bite mark, all Fibers, of these things. Yeah. yeah, and all these little separate little fiefdoms of forensic science. And it discovered, not to my surprise, but shocked a lot of people that none of them had been scientifically validated except for DNA. So how on earth did they gain acceptance in the court system? I mean, is are judges loath to Good rule question. against the prosecution? I presume the defense sometimes uses junk science too. Uh, you know, there has been a, there was an effort came out of the FBI lab, or J. Edgar Hoover, where they tried to, to objectify, you know, science. To and, CSI it? To CSI it and to pretend that what they were doing was objective science when sure. it was not. And that was the big problem. So, the um, so what the National Academy of Science study recommended that all of these the fingerprint society, the ballistic society, all these different organizations go back and look at their science and try and validate them. Crickets, almost nobody except for fingerprints. I'll give them credit; they've actually worked to try and standardize. Don't you think that's because of M O N E Y? No, it's not at all really? because of Really? I would think that there's cottage industries that make a fortune off this stuff. Um, well, it, it's partly because of that. I thought you meant lack of resources. No, like no, somehow. no. I mean, people make money. I mean, I was thinking, you were talking earlier about the incarceration. You have private prisons. So, you know, you want to incarcerate more people. And if people are making money and politicians are able to run on, I'm hard on crime and we can, you know, there's a need in the community when there's a crime committed, and you know this better than I, to have somebody be convicted promptly for it. Right. And but it, but it's not private prisons is a problem but it's 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 not typically when I look at the at it globally it's not private money that's the problem it's big government agencies that become entrenched and and have their little fiefdoms and so there's a cottage industry in prisons but it is it's not so much in the private realm as it is in government agencies run okay. so there are enormous bureaucracies and Many of their policies. Are we talking that, about the Bureau of Prisons and that kind of thing? Bureau or? of Prisons and on the state levels, the Departments of Corrections. You know, they never want to have to reduce their budgets. And so they use scare tactics to say that, oh, you know, we're, we can't let these violent criminals out on the streets if, if you don't give us enough money 
to run our prisons and to build more prisons when they get overcrowded, which, of course, fill up instantly. So anyway, so, so not much happened after the 2009 report. And then in 2016, as, as President Obama's administration was ending, um, PCAST, the Presidential Council of Science and Technology, issued a report in 2016 in which they looked at a specific part of forensics, the, the sort of evidence matching fields where you have hair comparison and bite marks and things of that nature. And they had a recommendation for a lot of changes. And then President Trump got elected. Jeff Sessions was appointed. He disbanded the National Science. I'm shocked. Forensic Science Commission, which was really working in a bipartisan way with scientists. Sure. To try and strengthen these processes. So we decided that we, that there was a, a vacuum that needed to be filled. And so what SIFS will be doing is working on, for the first time, we have clinics, a law clinic that will be working not just with law students, but actual graduate students in science. There's going to be a curriculum for undergraduate students that could be roll out nationwide where they can actually do the validation studies themselves and get credit for it, test these hypotheses, see if there really is any scientific basis behind some of these fields. Could I ask just one thing? Sure. What do you think is an area that is particularly baloney-laden in terms of, I mean, I understand hair fiber is a problem, but is there anything that you've encountered that you find is utter fiction? Ballistics. Okay. What Gun, guns. What people call ballistics, but okay. it's, it's really tool mark fields. So we're, which we're, was in, in Making a Murderer with Stephen Which Avery is in too. Making a Murderer, exactly. It's in, it's in many cases. Okay. And it, it, this is an example of how you start with the proposition that if you fire a bullet, it travels down the barrel of a, of a gun and picks up these little micro marks that, that are unique so that when you test fire that gun, you can then compare that to the to the bullet that's found at the scene and say with some sort of scientific precision that these, this bullet came from this gun and as way too many experts say, and no other gun in the world, which is complete baloney. It started with the idea way back when we used to hand bore all of our rifles and there were little differences. Distinctive signatures. Distinctive signatures. Um, now everything is mass produced and it's to precision. And so you know, to say that you can compare these bullets and say that there are class characteristics, you can say, yeah, this came from a 22 rifle, let's say. But to say that it came from that 22 rifle is, is complete and utter baloney. So how prevalent is that in courts? Extremely prevalent. In the Avery case, and this part wasn't in, in Making a Murderer, they had an expert come in. And one of the things they never do is bring in the, so what they do is they, they put the two bullets in a double field microscope. Uh, the test-fired bullet on one side and the, the crime scene bullet on the other, and then they, they're called striations or lines. They try and see how much they match up. Well, what they never tell the jury is that they will call it a match if only 40% of the lines match, meaning 60% it's different. So what's the statistical, I mean, what are the probabilities of the 40% match? I mean, I guess that's kind of the question that has to be teased out. It's never been studied. <laughs> yeah, so there, I mean, it's never been validated. No one has ever, you know, has a database that can that can say that, you know, as long as 40% of a match that is that's fine. sufficient. And what they do is, unless the defense attorney subpoenas the crime lab analyst to bring in the photograph of those, uh, the picture that he saw through the microscope, the, the jury will never see it. And they don't bring it in because they don't want the jury to line it up and see, oh, wait a minute, 
Those lines don't match. So do you think that Ken Kratzes and other prosecutors of the world know this about the ballistics information? Absolutely. They absolutely know That just seems so disingenuous to me. Well, a lot of it, frankly, is disingenuous. And, you know, what they would say, well, it's just a piece of evidence. It's just, a, you know, it's, it's, it's like a circumstantial evidence that's a piece of the puzzle. And we, it's, it's not because of that alone that someone's convicted. It's because of this other evidence as well. But it can have a big effect because people tend to not understand science and they tend to believe it. So uh, hair comparison is, is, let me go to that example sure. for a second. Because the FBI three years ago, to their credit, they went back and looked at their own uh, 200, a, a sample of 268 of their own cases. And when I say their own cases, cases where their analysts had testified. And they went and they looked at how did they phrase their opinions. And they found, shockingly, that 95% of those cases, their own FBI analysts had either misleadingly or falsely presented the forensic evidence on hair comparison. So they, they implied that there was this stronger match than, than, existed. than existed. And uh, shockingly, 32 of those were death penalty cases, and 14 of them had already been executed. Now, there may have well have been other evidence that supported it, uh, the execution or the death penalty in those cases. But the fact that the, this kind of science was being offered in such serious cases was a real problem. So they're now going broaden their study, and they're going back and looking at it more carefully, and they have stopped doing hair comparison, microscopic hair comparison opinions in court at all. But the FBI handles a very small percentage. They've taught hundreds, if not thousands, of other analysts all over the country in their own crime labs. And uh, Eric Holder actually offered... Uh, former Attorney General former Attorney Obama. General um, actually offered and sent out a letter to all of the states after these results came out and said, there's federal money available for you to go back and look at some of your cases, see if these similar mistakes were made over uh, opinions, you know, over strong opinions when it's, the science wasn't there. A couple of the states agreed and took them up on it. Wisconsin refused. Of course, um, a lot of them did. Um, they just said, ah, we don't want to be bothered with that. Why would we upset the apple cart? Wow. Yeah. Kind of disturbing. So one of the things that SIFS, the Center for Integrity and Forensic Science, is designed to do is we are taking private money. We, it's not going to be any kind of government politically connected money. And we're going to go wherever the science goes. You know, it's unlike like an innocence project. The focus isn't entirely on innocence. It's reliability of the evidence. So if in, I can certainly envision that in some instances these scientific validation studies will end up helping the prosecution by strengthening the forensic evidence. But that's where science goes. And, you know, we're committed to, to try and raise the funds that's necessary to, to get this program. There's a lot of scientists, real scientists, who are behind this kind of an effort. We've got a, a great advisory board of of very esteemed scientists on board, and we're very excited about what we what kind of an imp impact we can have in trying. To, and one of the things also, one of the problems is crime labs are almost exclusively under the funding control of, of governmental of entities, law enforcement, yeah. and that needs to separate. Because one of the most obvious things, if you're any scientist and you and you look at the way they do these tests, they do not do blind testing. No other field of science gives a sample to a scientist and says, this is what this is. Uh, but in crime labs... Find common characteristics. Find common characteristics. But in crime labs, you know, they're given this sample and they say, this is the suspect's 
DNA sample. And oh, by the way, these other ones, these are just elimination samples that we know don't have anything to do with it. There's no reason in the world that these labs should be told that kind of information. They should get blind samples, not know who is who, do the tests and see how the tests come out. Because there's something called cognitive bias or tunnel vision that is an absolutely documented human trait that, that applies to not just police officers, you, me, but scientists. And there's, it's a tendency when you have a, uh, a particular idea about a case or a, a piece of evidence, you will tend to look at evidence that will support that theory and reject anything that doesn't. So it's like you're looking down a tunnel and you're, you're ignoring all this other evidence off to the side. If you do blind testing, you remove that risk by, by not giving them enough information that could unknowingly affect and bias the results. So I regret to say that we have run out of time in this first segment of the show. If you would consider sticking around, I think there are some additional things that we could cover that might be of interest to our audience. Sure, I'd be happy to. All right. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Thank you for listening. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.